Good morning and good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Before Coffee. It's Wacky and Weird Wednesday, and boy, do we have some wacky stories like a pigeon spy and a nuke found in your garage. Let's go ahead and cover our headlines here today on Before Coffee. One of Europe's deepest mines is being turned into a gravity battery. Michigan moms going to prison for what her son did. Plus, somebody finds a missile in their garage. Michael Jordan's shoes become the most expensive worn shoes ever after auction. And India releases a pigeon suspected of spying for China after eight months. And we remember the life of Carl Weathers and in other news briefs, Chili's former president dies in a plane crash. Blazing Saddles is 50 years old. The bun-pushing spoof that could never get made today. Those stories and more, which is National Periodic Table Day. February 7th, 2024 on Before Coffee. Shit I don't care about. Yeah. Phones be a buzzing. Let's go ahead and cover the short story here about one of Europe's deepest mines being turned into a gravity battery. What is a gravity battery? I'm sure this article from Euronews is going to tell us. A Scottish company is using the... Oh, I forgot to turn on the music. I was like, why is it so quiet? There you go. There you go. A Scottish company using the Pihajar V mine to build its first scale prototype gravity energy store. One of Europe's steepest mine in a small town in Finland is being transformed into an underground energy store. It will use gravity to retain excess power for when it's needed. The remote Finnish community of Pahajarvi is 450 kilometers north of Helsinki. It's more than 1,400 meter deep zinc and copper Pihajarvi mine has been decommissioned, but is now being given a new lease on life by Scotland-based company Gravitricity. Gravitricity. The firm has developed an energy source system that raises and lowers weights, offering what it says are some of the best characteristics of lithium-ion batteries in pumped hydro storage. So how does a gravity battery work? That's what I'm asking. When there is excess power from wind turbines on a windy day, for example, weights would be winced up the Pihelsami mine's 530 meter auxiliary shaft to generate energy. These weights can be released, turning the winches into generators, creating either a short burst of electricity, electricity or a slower trickle depending what is needed. Ah, so they're still using kinetic energy. That's the only way. No way. That's the only way we know how to make energy is with kinetic uh, release, basically. The gravity energy system could be able to store two two megawatts. I think that's megawatts. Mw of power and integrate into the local energy grid. A study published by a team international researchers last month found that gravity batteries in decommissioned mines could offer a cost-effective long-term solution for storing energy as the world transitions to renewable power. Scientists from the International Institute for Applied Analysis, System Analysis, IIASA, found that the world's abandoned mine shafts could store up to 70 trillion watt hours of power. That's a lot, but I don't know how much we use every year, so that might not be a lot, actually. I'll look that up, I guess, after this. Roughly the equivalent of the global daily electric consumption. Okay, they literally just told me the next sentence. Um, so the global daily electricity consumption is 70 trillion 
watt hours of power. And they could store that much. So they could store a day's worth of energy in every single mine. So if you collect all the mines, you could have 50 days worth of energy stored up in these gavities. I don't know how many mines there are. There's probably thousands of mines in the world, millions of mines in the world. Maybe not millions, maybe just thousands um, of mines in the world. <laughs> and they could store, each one could store the global daily electricity consumption of the world. Bringing low carbon jobs to a mining community. The local community in Pajarvi has set up a development company to promote regeneration at the old mine. It has just signed an agreement with Gravitricity to transform the old mine shaft into the first full scale prototype of the company's technology. They anticipate this could become Europe's first Gravi store deployment, according to the company. This project will demonstrate a full scale on how our technology can offer reliable long life energy storage that can capture and store energy during periods of low demand and release it rapidly when required. Gravitricity's executive chairman, Martin Wright, said. The full-scale project will provide a pathway to other commercial projects and allow our solution to be embedded into mine decommissioning activities, offering a potential future for mines approaching the end of their original service life. Wright also adds that this project will hopefully provide low-carbon jobs in an area suffering significantly from ending mining operations. That's true. One reason it's hard to close down a mine is what happens to the town becomes a ghost town because nobody wants... Why are we here? The mine's closed down. I'm going to go to the city. You know, or somewhere else. No reason to be here anymore. The mine's gone. This specific mine was opened in 1962, extracting more than 60 million tons of ore over its lifetime. Once a major employer in the region, it closed in August 2022, leaving many unemployed. The Gravity Battery is one of several community-driven projects at the mine aimed at breathing new life into the area. It includes a solar farm, tech startups, and an underground 5G network. Oh no, not the 5G! Don't tell the conservatives about that. So I don't know if that's a the 5G paranoia is a problem in Europe, but uh. Another That's all, I. There might there might be some uh, problems in the U.S. <laughs> for that. <laughs> Which is funny because actually there has been a theory that the prevalence of 5G in lower community towns has actually increased conservative participation in the internet. That's why things like country songs are starting to hit number one, because they actually can use Spotify now. Before, they didn't have the streaming, like the internet capabilities to actually stream songs on Spotify. That's the theory anyways. Data not around. No data to, just trust me, bro. Uh, that's the theory. Blind guess from scientists. No science found, but there you go. Well, I guess in a, you know, if you live in a mining town, go go contact Gravity City or other similar operations and say, hey, I want a job. Open up a freaking ba gravity battery in my town, please. And maybe they'll do it. I don't know. But we'll see, I guess, what this trial will do in the coming years with green energy. And on to your story. Okay, let me scoot up to the mic here. Okay, uh, we have a... This is started in Detroit News. Jennifer Chambers. Oxford families greet verdict with gratitude. One calls it a huge win for a country. Families affected by the Oxford High School shooting greeted Tuesday's guilty verdict of, for the mother of the Oxford killer on involuntary manslaughter charges with responses ranging from pleased to surprised to relieved. Buck Meyer, who's son, 16-year-old Tate, was gunned down in November 21 attack and then 
Northern Oakland County High Schools, said he was surprised with the jury's decision to find Jennifer Crumbly guilty in all four counts of involuntary manslaughter connected to the deaths of four students. Seven others were wounded in the attack carried out by Crumbly's then 15-year-old son. I'm actually surprised that people decided, and that's how the system should work, Meyer said of the jury's decision. Also killed in the attack were Madison Baldwin, 19, Hannah St. Juliana, 14, and Justin Schilling, 17. Several parents of the victims attended some or all the seven-day trial in Pontiac, including Steve St. Juliana, Craig Schilling, and Madison's mother, Nicole Bossolet. Megan Gregory, whose son Keegan witnessed the shooting and escaped the school, said Tuesday she was feeling overwhelming feeling of gratitude. I believe this is a huge win for our country, Gregory said. Change needs to happen in future generations. Holding parents accountable for inaction to provide ordinary care is necessary for the safety of all children. The evidence is all there. Attorney, attorney Wolfgang Mueller, who represents Bulacell and Sandra Cunningham, the mother of the Oxford High student Phoebe Arthur, who was shot in the attack, said both of his clients are pleased with by the verdict. My clients are pleased that the parent is being held accountable for reprehensible conduct, but this trial is gut-wrenching. The failures of the parents and the school district employees, as well as the shooter's actions, caused four children to never come back home to their families. While the loss of a child is the worst pain a parent can imagine, the survivors will suffer the rest of their lives. They should not be forgotten. The verdict kept the national, nationally watched trial that marked the first time a parent has been tried in connection with the mass shootings of his or her child. Prosecutors portrayed Crumbly, 45, as a negligent person who ignored signs her teen son was in crisis, never got him help, and brought him a, and bought him a 9mm gun anyway. Here, son, happy birthday. But her, wow. but her attorney described Crumley as a caring patient and argued that there was no way that number, November 30th, 21 shooting was foreseeable. Jace McCarthy, a student at Oxford High when the attack happened in 21, said he watched the case in person and online. McCarthy said he was surprised by his own reaction to the verdict. Actually helped enjoy. I actually yelped enjoy. It was very excited. I felt like a weight was lifted off my shoulders. It was very good to hear, said McCarthy, now 21. McCarthy spoke as the victim, as a victim at Ethan Crumbly's sentencing last December and said he knew that they, the killer was going away to prison for life. For the mom, it was, for the mom, I was teetering on the edge of whether she could get off or there could be a mistrial. While the guilty verdict does not change what happened, he said it does send a message. It sets the foundation for the next generation of shooters and parents who think that it's okay to give a kid a gun or not safely lock it up and follow the law. McCarthy said Andre Jones, a parent at Oxford Schools, was sued, who sued the district over the deadly shooting, attended the trial and watched the verdict. I felt that it was a justice for those families, another step of accountability. We still have the school to hold accountable, Jonas said. I was worried about a hung jury for a little bit there. I know there was evidence that could not be presented. I'm so grateful they took their time and went through the evidence. He's been anxious all week with the verdict and we are all in shock. It's here, it's happened. Jones said Jennifer Crumbly did not show remorse for her actions or what happened during the trial. It's all about her. The day of the shooting, we all rushed to that school. We would do anything for our kids. They went to their house to look for the gun. Jones said of a husband, James Crumley, who faces a trial next month on the same charges. 
Governor Gretchen Whitmer thanked Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald for her work in the case. I'm thinking of the families of Oxford who lost loved ones and all the members of the community who bear scars, both seen and unseen from a tragic day. They've been strung through unimaginable grief, working hard to bring justice to their loved ones and honor those they lost with action. I want to thank Karen McDonald for centering the families and community at every step of the case. Oakland County Executive Dave Coulter said the guilty verdict is a strong signal and an important step towards accountability. Let's all embrace the community with love and continue the support they need in their path towards healing. So mom's going to prison, dad's going to be on trial later. And we'll go to the weird news for the day. That's not necessarily weird, but it's definitely out of the ordinary. I mean, that first one, that first one was also very weird. I must give my kid a gun. That's really weird thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and the first thing after the shooting they did is, hey, I hope that gun is hidden. Hide the evidence. Whatever they were thinking. Uh, that's illegal. Well, to larger munitions, we go to a Bellevue, Washington. This is AP News. Uh, doesn't have a byline. Reporter's name? Bellevue, Washington. An inert rocket of the type used to carry nuclear warhead has been found in a garage of a home of a deceased resident in Washington State, police said. Bellevue police responded Thursday to report a military-grade rocket in the garage of a home in a city across Lake Washington from Seattle. Police said in an Air Force museum in Daytona, police said in an Air Force museum in Dayton, Ohio, had called... Okay, that sentence is weird. <laughs> anyway, he call, had called Wednesday to report an offer to donate the item, which the neighbors said had been purchased in an estate sale. Bomb squad members inspected the rusting object and found it was a Douglas AIR-2 Genie, previously designated as MB-1, and an unguided air-to-air -air rocket that is designed to carry a 1.5 kiloton W-25 nuclear warhead. Wow. Those things, those things will mess, don't mess up your day. There was no warhead the attached for sure. there was no rocket fuel. Of course there was no warhead attached, his hair would have fallen out. Yeah. Essentially meaning that the item was artifact with no explosive hazard. So because the item was inert and military did not request it back, police left the item with the neighbor to be restored display at any museum. According to the Air Force Armament Museum Foundation, the unguided air-to-air -air rocket was used by the U.S. and Canada during a period of the Cold War when interception of Soviet strategic bombers was a military concern. In July 1957, a genie was launched at 18,000 feet, or 5,500 meters, from a F-89J interceptor and detonated over Yucca Flats, Nevada first and only test detonation of a U.S. nuclear-tipped air-to-air rocket. And we think it's going to be a long, long time before we get another call like this. Sounds like that's from Elton John song. <laughs> and I think it's going to be a long, long time. I'm a rocket man. <laughs> okay, that's it. There's a story about the missile. And I still can't figure out what that sentence says. Police said an Air Force museum in Dayton, Ohio, had called Wednesday evening to report an offer to donate the item. They want to buy the rocket, I guess. They want to put in their museum. They didn't know about it until they heard about it from Dayton, Ohio, even though this happened in <laughs> Bellville, Washington, which is right across the lake. I know exactly where it is. Right across Lake Washington from Seattle. Yeah. Right, a big lake in front of Seattle. It's Bellevue's across it. 
in front of Seattle. It's like their front porch. <laughs> the front porch. <laughs> Back to you. Oh, well, Let's it's a good thing that there was no hidden front. nuke in somebody's garage that could just get set off and wipe the neighborhood out. Uh, in all my weird news, we've got two things. We've got Michael Jordan shoes. This is from New.nl, which is a Dutch news source. From February 2nd, six Air Jordan shoes worn by basketball player Michael Jordan have been auctioned in New York for $8 million, or 7.42 million euros. That's a lot of money for some shoes, but they are legendary shoes. According to auction house Sotheby's, these are the most expensive worn shoes ever auctioned. Basketball icon Jordan wore the shoes during six NBA finals. Yeah, that's definitely, those are pricey shoes that he won during his career. So it's all the shoes he wore during every single final he won. And somebody owns that for $8 million. Hey, whatever makes you feel like you're successful in life. Hey, look at my shoe collection. Hey, oh, yeah. he played for the Chicago Some Bulls. And cheese. today, when he, when he played for the Chicago Bulls, today's record yield is a tribute for, to the GOAT. Greatest of all time for anybody who doesn't know what that means, said Bram Walker of Sotheby's. A truly unparalleled moment and milestone in auction history. The sale of these six championship shoes will likely never be repeated, he said. A Jordan shirt was previously auctioned for $10.1 million or 9.636 million euros. He wore that during the 1998 NBA Finals. So the shirt, well, I guess you can wear the shirt, but you never want to wear the shoes. But you could still wear the shirt. Nobody wants to wear any of it. <laughs> Imagine taking the Jordan shirt and just wearing it to a dinner and then spilling wine on it. <laughs> I'm never taking this out of its case. In December, six shirts of the professional footballer Lionel Messi were auctioned for 7 million euros. Messi wore those shirts at the World Cup in Cater. And that's, I guess, a notable auction as well. But it looks like Jordan is the, you know, not only six-time NBA final winner, but also two-time most auctioned items belonging to a sports star ever. So something to put on your obituary, I guess. <laughs> Whenever, you know. I sold my stuff for a lot of money. He probably didn't even get the money. It's whoever owns them, right? Somebody else probably... I don't think Jordan owns the, the things that are being sold. I think somebody else is selling them for more money. He may, uh, who knows? He's a legendary degenerate gambler. Who knows if he, what kind of money he still has? I just feel like maybe I don't. I don't feel like it's not him. I feel like he's already sold them before, and this is somebody else mm. getting, right, you know, right. their investment back. They're like, I invested in this, and it's only raised in price because I collected all this the shoes. Michael I got Jordan's one shoe and then another shoe, and now I have all the shoes, and now I'm going to sell it for. A, a lot of money. In uh, more weird news, India releases pigeon suspected of spying. A racing pigeon has been released in India after being held by police for eight months. This is also from New Point and Ella. The police suspected the pigeons of espionage because it had rings with Chinese-looking characters on its legs. Maybe they were just like blessing the racing pigeon, you know, like. I, the person was a the owner was Chinese and he's like I need to give it strength and speed and I put it on its <laughs> the pigeon was found 
Yeah. In the port of Mumbai in May 2023, reports that the Indian news agency pressed Trust of India. Because the police suspected the pigeon of involvement in espionage by China, the animal was seized. But research shows that the pigeon has nothing to do in espionage. It turns out to be a racing pigeon from Taiwan, which is why it had Chinese characters on his legs. The pigeon is trained about to fly over open waters like seas. The animal had escaped its owner and flown to India. It is now not the first time that the police suspected a pigeon. In 2020, India released a pigeon after it flew over the heavily guarded border with Pakistan into India. India wanted to make sure the pigeon was not a spy. In 2016, another pigeon was captured because it was carrying a note threatening Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. So I guess, yeah, they're still doing pigeon warfare out there in India. We've just abandoned all our war pigeons and turned them into pests. Which is really tragic when you think about it. All the pigeons in all the cities, they are the descendants of what used to be pets. Like, it's like if you... It's like cats, too. That happens to cats as well. Like, one pet cat, another pet cat, and next thing you know, you have a bunch of alley cats. Because you just abandon mm. animals, and then you go... And then people have the gall to complain, Oh, I hate pigeons. Well, maybe you should take some in. Because they're just lost pets that have been abandoned, really. Where are my pigeon shelters? <laughs> we got cat shelters, dog just shelters, put, my put, pigeon shelter. <laughs> put a big old pigeon uh, shelters on top of your buildings. They love yeah. I guess so. But there's my two weird stories. Huh? On to your next. Okay. okay, we've got some sad news to report. This is going to be about uh, obituaries. Uh, the Chile's former president, Sebastian Pinera, dies in a helicopter crash. This is from Reuters. Natalia Ramos Miranda, Anthony Esposito, and Fabian Combero. Santiago. Chile ex-president Sebastian Pinera died in a helicopter crash on Tuesday. Then the country led for two terms in the morning and prompting an outpouring of condolences from across Latin America. The helicopter carrying Pinera, 74, and three others plunged into the lake in southern Chile. Wow. The former president was pronounced dead shortly after the rescue personnel arrived at the scene. The other three passengers survived. Uh, maybe he couldn't swim? Uh, two sources told, well, he could have just hit his head, not knocked unconscious. Yeah. Two, two sources told Pinera was, told Reuters, Pinera was the pilot, so officials have not confirmed that, nor the helicopter's intended destination. Pinera often spent the southern hemisphere summers near the picturesque lakes that dot Chile south and frequently plotted, piloted his own helicopter, or plotted. So it's basically his own uh, situation. He's the only one died, so. President Gabriel Boric declared three days of national mourning while preparations had begun for the state funeral on Friday for the former leaders who two non-consecutive terms between 2010 and 2022. Interior Minister Carolina Toja said the ex-president's body had been recovered from the lake near the town of Lago Ranco. We remember him for the way he dedicated his life to public service, said Toha, who has been helping lead efforts to battle deadly wildfires in recent days. Monero was perhaps best known broad for his role overseeing the spectacular rescue of, in 2010 of 33 miners who were trapped underneath the Atacama Desert. The event became a global media sensation and was the subject of the 2014 movie, The 33. In Chile, he was known as a successful businessman. His first term was boosted by rapid economic growth, but it was often seen as out of touch with the country's fast-changing society. 
Both his presidencies were marred by frequent protests of students demanding education reform in the first term of wider, often violent protests against inequality in the second term that ended with the government promising to draft a new constitution. After leaving the presidency, Panera remained active in politics, speaking on issues like the attempt to draft a new constitution, which ultimately failed, and backing conservative politicians in the region, including Argentine President Javier Millet. Oh boy, he's backing that guy. Former, well he was, former Argentine President Mar Mauricio Macri expressed sadness in the news of Panera's death. He was a good person, committed like no one else to Chile and the values of freedom and democracy in Latin America. The son of a prominent centrist politician, Panera was a Harvard-trained econom economist who made his fortune introducing credit cards to Chile in the 1980s. Woohoo! Mr. Lone Shark. He was also a major shareholder in a flagship airline formerly known as LAN, local soccer team Coca-Cola, Colo Colo, Colo Colo, and a television station, although he sold most of those holdings when he took over his presidency in March 2010. As of 2024, he was ranked 1,174 in Forbes Global Rich List with a net worth of 2.7 billion, which is going to be divided up amongst several people now, I suppose. Known for a driven and competitive personality, one friend described Panera as someone who could be a bully, reluctant to delegate responsibility. He was also a risk taker, enjoyed deep sea diving. Running for election to the presidency after a spell of center rights, a spell as a center right senator, he would moderate voters by portraying himself as a leader of the new right, with entrepreneur who made his fortune with hard work. At the same time, he distanced himself from the 1973 to 1990 rule of General Augusto Pinochet when more than 3,000 suspected leftists were killed or disappeared. He lost his first attempt at the job in 2005 to popular center left leader Michelle Bachelet, but she was barred constitutionally from running for a second consecutive term in 2009, and he beat ex-president Eduardo Frey by a small margin. It ended a 20-year rule of center-left and fended off bitter memories of Pinochet's bloody dictatorship that had hurt the right in past elections. His honeymoon with Electra was short-lived, though, and his stiff manner contrasted with the moral the more amiable Rachelet, who both preceded and succeeded him as president. Despite plaudits for his government's economic records, many Chileans felt he did not do enough to tackle deep inequality or address inadequacies in the country's education system. And her and his wife, Cecilia Morel, had four children, and these four children, of course. Wow. And divide up that 2.7 billion of wealth that he had, or at least his net wealth, right? Okay, another obituary. Had it. <laughs> What's that? Is it that's net wealth or is it actually his wealth, you know? That's the, what he's rated on Forbes. Is having yeah, so. It's probably not cash. It's not yeah, not he's not, he doesn't not have cash in a vault somewhere <laughs> with his gold bars. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's good in his basement. Next he has to some shares. He has his, some uh, shares, and they're gonna split up the shares and be like, "Woo! Thanks, Dad, for doing all that work. Collection. I'm gonna go spend it all." I don't know. Well, another obituary knows in a death we missed over the weekend because I thought it was one of those hoaxes, right? Oh. Those hoax clickbait things. Carl Weathers died. Apollo Creed on uh, February first. First, 
uh, which was last Thursday. We missed it on last Friday, and we are finally catching up to it now. This is from Ryan Gilby of The Guardian. When Carl Weathers auditioned for the role of Apollo Creed, the prize fighter, who gives an untried contender a shot at the heavyweight title in Rocky, he was asked to read opposite the film's writer. Now I'm an, now I'm ignorant, and as I finish reading, I say, well, wait a minute. If, if you can get me a real actor to read with, I can do this a lot better. <laughs> I'm being honest to him, his scene partner was newcomer Sylvester Stallone, who had wow. not only written the script, but was playing the title role. Somehow I got the job, said Weathers. The six foot two inch like former the, the NFL linebacker. This guy. You know what? You're hired. <laughs> <laughs> a six foot two inch former NFL linebacker, Weathers, who had died at the age of 76, brought the full force of his charisma to the role and could in less put in less skillful hands have been prompted straightforward hisses and moves. There was a depth and kindness to him and no amount of on-screen braggadocio could conceal. He spoke said one of the LA Times reporter with with the overly concise diction of a TV evangelist. To prepare, to prepare for the role of Apollo, Weathers watched old Muhammad Ali fights for inspiration. Shot for Peanuts, the film grossed $225 million, won three Oscars, including Best Picture, and spawned four sequels. A further three films in the spin-off Creed cycle featured Michael B. Jordan as Apollo's son, Adonis. Weathers was taken aback by the instant fame that Rocky brought him. The day after the film opened, he said, I was up for a walk in Manhattan and the street vendors are yelling, Yo, Apollo! That's scary. You're not prepared for that. <laughs> Is anyone ever really? He reprised his role in the first three Rocky sequels, Rocky II, 1979, begins immediately after the events of the original film, which both fighters in wheelchairs coming face to face, face to swollen face, with one another in the hospital. Get up out of that chair, chump, oh, and let's finish this fight uh, right now, Apollo demands, having won only a split decision after 15 rounds. Later, there is a moment of tenderness when Rocky, bandaged and slurring, wheels himself to Apollo's hospital room late at night, nudges, opens the door, and asks whether Apollo really gave the match his all. Though they decided initially against the rematch, Apollo becomes incensed by the hate mail receives, branding the fight of fake. Rocky II ends with the opponent's bloody on the canvas, struggling to his feet. Rocky is declared the winner. In Rocky III, Apollo trains Rocky against a vicious new opponent, Clubber Lang, which is played by Mr. T. The old adversaries get back in the ring at the end of the film in a friendly sparring match. The outcome of which remained a secret until Rocky revealed to Adonis Creed in 2015 that Apollo had clinched it. In Rocky IV, Apollo was brutally trounced in a bout with the Russian boxer Ivan Drago, played yeah, by Dolph Lundgren, and he dies in Rocky's arms. Weathers found many of the subsequent roles he was offered to be pointless and meaningless, but he enjoyed scoring off against another of the decade's action heroes, Arnold Schwarzenegger, in the fantasy thriller Predator. Predator, which also included Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, another governor. What's his name? The guy was a governor of Minnesota. That's the only movie with two governors in it. <laughs> <laughs> in their first scene together, the men greet each other as a handshake and develops in a prompt to arm wrestling contest. It was won by Schwarzenegger's bicep bulging monstrously, monstrously in close up. It clarifies to the more famous actor literally flexing his celebrity muscle. Weathers later meets a sticky end during the encounter with the jungle with a shape-shifting alien. Man, you're giving away spoiler alerts here. 
He acquitted himself well as Adam Sandler's golfing golfing comedy Happy Gilmore is a pro golfer whose hand was bitten off by an alligator. In one scene, he sits at a grand piano at a golf course playing We've Only Just Begun. He reprised the role in Sandler's Little Nicky, but it was even funnier as a tight-fisted, cost-cutting version of himself in four episodes of the sitcom Arrested Development between 2004 and 2013. Withers was born in New Orleans, the eldest son of a laborer father. He won a sports scholarship at St. Augustine High School. He then attended Long Beach Poly High School and Long Beach City College. He made it to San Diego State University on a football scholarship and graduated with a degree in theater. His professional football career began in 1970 the single season with the Oakland Raiders. After being dismissed for being too sensitive, he played two years in the British Columbia Lions in the Canadian Football League. How good, how good was I? I was good enough to make it, but I was never dedicated enough. I was never in love with football. Acting, he said, was a lot more fun, and I ate a lot less. He retired from football in 1974 and won supporting roles in television series such as The Six Million Dollar Man, Starsky and Hutch, and with Pram Gear, or Pam Gear, her sister, in the black exploitation thrillers Bucktown and Friday Boston, both in 1975. After Rocky started with Burt Reynolds and Chris Christopherson in the football comedy Semi Tough, Robert Shaw and Harrison Ford in the Guns of Navarone sequel Force 10 from Navarone and alongside Charles Bronson and Lee Marvin in the thriller Death Hunt. He also wrote and performed the 1981 Soul Signal, You Ought to Be With Me. Oh dang, I wish I would have found a clip of that before the show. Television work was plentiful, though attempts with fashion, long-running TV vehicle for him were hit and miss. In Fortune Dane, he played a political troubleshooter to battle white-collar crime. The show lasted six episodes. Producer Barry Rosenweg called Weathers one of the more intelligent people I've ever been in the business with, but he's a physical animal. He's gorgeous. The guy looks like a Greek guy. All right, now, dry yourself off, dude, okay? Yeah. <laughs> he was a regular uh, Street Justice, 1991 to 93. Then the Heat of the Night, 93 to 95, inspired by the 1967 Sydney Poitier film, the same name. There's Europe. Biography of Carl Weathers, who is still appearing on TV as the FanDuel guy who's training Rob Gronkowski to kick the field goal at the uh, little side promotion at the Super Bowl. So there's your uh, obituary for Carl Weathers, Apollo Creed, as he will be known. Rest in peace. Be, let it be. All right. Let's go ahead and look at my very long, not very, uh, decently long culture segment here about Blazing Saddles 50th anniversary from Scott Tobias on The Guardian. Though it rarely gets mentioned in the same breath as The Wild Bunch, Macabre, or Mrs. Miller, and the wave of revisionist westerns that came out of Hollywood in the late 60s and early 70s, Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles doesn't need an artfully hazy Vilmos Zygitzman cinematography to upend Old West mythology. True, it is a comedy where a horse gets cold cocked, a Native American chief, one of the three characters played by Brooks, speaks Yiddish, and Count Blaze's orchestra makes an appearance on the plains. Yet, from the opening sequence where the Chinese immigrants and recently freed black slave work under the white man's whip to build a railroad, this irrelevant Looney Tunes spoof of the genre takes a dimmer view of the frontier life than the classic parodies. One of the most popular things about Blazing Saddles is that it can never be made today. 
or at least popular opinions about it, due to its frequent deployment of the N-word. But it should be noted that it barely got made in 1974 for the same reason. So it's, it's more like a miracle it was made, I guess. As the grinning white foreman who requests the black workers sing the line, when you were slaves, you sing like birds, Vern Gilliam was so ashamed to use the word that he apologized to the star, Cleveland Little, who reminded him of its villainous context in the script. Throughout the film, the N-word is a hard slap that intended to sting, then as much as it is now, 50 years later, and it's little and the sly Bugs Bunny of Brooks Cartoon West who makes buffoons of everyone who utters it. Expecting a grim spiritual like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, or the minstrel song Camp Town Races, Little Bart's instead leads his men to a hilarious anachronistic rendition of Cole Porter's I Get a Kick Out of You, a tune so modern in 1934 that the line Some Get a Kick from Cocaine had to be altered for the movies. Yet here Bart is in 1874 clowning on a pack of yokels so racist that when he and another black laborer run a push cart into quicksand they rescue the cart first for brooks the ability to toggle freely across timelines gives him that many more opportunities to make jokes i must have killed more men than cecil b demille is a favorite but also just that not much has changed in the century Brooks had a road tested this kind of audacity before with the producers, also famous for having an N-word that people don't like in Europe, which is of course Nazi. The brilliant debut comedy about a scam to turn a Nazi fantasia called Springtime for Hitler into the worst musical in Broadway history. The Brooks mind the best way to confront human evil is to laugh at its face. And while Blazing Saddle doesn't quite have the conceptual hook of the producer, it hinges on the same cheerful willingness to provoke. Brooks and his screenwriting team, which includes Andrew Bergman, the in-laws, and Richard Pryor, put racial disharmony at the center of Blazing Saddles and tickled away at the tension. Well, yeah, B Richard Pryor was definitely one to, <laughs> to cover that. Uh, with shades of Once Upon a Time in the West and several other westerns about the bloody, lucrative fight over the railway line, Blazing Saddles starts with a train that must be rerouted through the humble town of Rockridge, which stands to be a boon for developers in a bid to drive residents out of Rockridge. The Territorial Attorney General, Harvey Corman, and his goon, Slim Pickens, kill the sheriff and convince the governor, Brooks, to show off his progressive bona fides by appointing Bart in his place. They assume that the locals will be so appalled at having a black sheriff, they will leave town vulnerable to attack. The welcoming committee is indeed shocked by Bart strolling to town. They do not know, do not extend him a lore and hearty handshake, but he gains an ally in Jim, aka the wacko kid, a hard drinking gunslinger who's drying out in jail cell when he arrives. Played by Gene Wilder, who's much more charmingly at ease than his anxious accountant in the producers, Jim describes the Templar frontier folk of Rockridge in less than virtuous terms. These, uh, well, these people are of the land. The common clay of the New West. You know, morons. If Bart can't win them over, he'll have an easy time pranking his way around them. In making this first smooth about the movies, his classic riff on Universal Monsters, Young Frankenstein would arrive later that year. Brooks not only comments on the Western genre, but gives himself a license to viol violate the rules relentlessly. His characters break the fourth wall, like an old woman who pauses her own beating to ask the audience, have you ever seen such cruelty? There are jokes about Rodolf Scott, Jesse Owens, and other yet-to-be-born figures, including a bit where the film jumps forward to Douglas Fairbanks' spot on the Hollywood Walk of Fame to wonder how he performed such incredible stunts 
with such little feet. By the time Blazing Saddle ends, Brooks has so thoroughly obliterated the separation between the screen and the theater that Wilder kicks back with a box of popcorn. Despite the sharp edges of the film's racial comedy, Brooks isn't a rabble-rouser by nature. He's more like a Sheriff Bart, who wins over a hostile crowd by completely disarming them. So what if Blazing Saddles can never be made today? It still plays, and I agree. Uh, if you want to watch a really good, um, what is it called? video essay about Blazing Saddles, you should definitely check out Lindy Ellis' video on that. She really covers in depth why the film is great if you just bypass the all the stuff that you think you're gonna that's gonna piss you off. I think the video is really great. No, also you can just watch the film and decide for yourself if you think it's it's a good film instead of just saying that film's racist because they said the N-word and never watch it. You know, keep your mind open. So and that's going to be the mic drop, by the way. I'm just going to do the oh, clip okay, from great. Blazing Saddles. So, <laughs> on to this day right, in history. Cool. Just anything from that movie works. Yeah. I, I disagree. I disagree. Like, I don't know if I can disagree more that it could not be made today. Like, oh, it was so controversial to use the N-word 1975. Yeah, well, 1977, they had a show on TV called Roots, which was like seven episodes and N-word dropping everywhere. On yeah. TV, it wasn't in the theaters either. Plus, you got Quentin Tarantino making movies nowadays. You want to hear the N-word? Go attend Tarantino movie. The only one he didn't use the N-word in was probably Inglorious Bastards because it was about... Well, he uh, used the N- he, he used the Jews other N-word, Nazi. Nazi is the N-word of Europe, okay? Oh, yeah, You're Nazi. Not, yeah. Again, Christ, you have Europeans are appalled yeah. how easily Americans are just like grammar Nazi and they're like, excuse me? Yeah. People died, and it's true. People did die because of Nazis. So. Well, Django Unchained is a lot more inward and heavy and slave heavy and masochistic, sadistic uh, (laughs) violence against everyone. I'm personally uh, not a fan of Quentin Tarantino. So I don't know why Blazing Saddles is a harmless comedy. I, I disagree. It's like the people that say, you know those George Carlin specials they run on YouTube, like the George Carlin stuff? Yeah. George Carlin could never say those things today. And was like, George Carlin couldn't say those things then either. He was on <laughs> HBO. <laughs> HBO is the only place he could do that. He could People forget, for people are so used to HBO, Club. they don't know the history yeah. of HBO. It was like a porn channel right no censorship whatsoever yeah. on hbo you don't Other hbo than was like the risky everything. channel and now it's been completely commercialized that people don't remember that that it's it was still the, the same they still don't edit they still don't tell the people what they can put on hbo is the one place or that it, at least, I don't think the other, there's other streaming services like that now, but back then HBO was like, you pay for a month of HBO and that's what you got. You got yeah. unedited crap. And that's the only way George Carlin could do that. But people think that it was on live TV or something. <laughs> yeah, he was just anyway. doing it on CBS or something. Or, and <laughs> I, I have no idea what they think. I mean, Eddie Murphy had uh, specials on HBO. He could never do it anywhere. Anyway, insert Richard Pryor. I mean, yeah. a lot of people did, but just uh, George Carlin did it every couple of years. All right, this day yesterday. Just want to correct the record. I'm thinking that we've gotten more censorship. There's just more stuff now. You, if you want to watch anything, you can watch it, man. Yeah. Why are we moaning about stuff that's kind of 
not exactly. And to anyway, be fair, I'll it doesn't stop. need to be made today. It's, it's already been made and still good. So just watch it. That's just right. Go watch That's Blazing right. Saddles. Go it, watch all it, of Mel Brooks films. I will say it's needlessly edited. I will say that. Oh, They're yeah. words, man. These were the words they used. If they offend you, good. You're offended. But That's let the them point. use the words. Yeah, you know? the point. Specifically yeah, exactly. in Blazing Saddles, yeah. the point of the word being used is that you are supposed to be insulted. And then you're supposed to be... Wonder what he's... You're supposed to feel some sort of catharsis when the racists are punished in the film. That's what the point of using the word is. Right? Yeah. I hate censorship. It's like, that song, like the song Man in the Box. You know, yeah. when they did the video, he's like, I am the man in the box, buried in my pit. No, 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 no. You're buried in shit. Why? <laughs> shit is, everybody does this every single day, but we can't say it. Yeah. That's absurd. I'm, I'm back to being George Carlin. 1477 <laughs> on this day, English humanist statement is Sir Thomas More was born in London. 1613. Michael Romanov, founder of the Romanov dynasty, became Tsar of Russia. 1812, one of the largest earthquakes in U.S. history occurred along the New Madrid Fault, which is near Missouri. Um, I wonder why they didn't just say how big it was. Don't this know. is one of the biggest. It was really big. 1885, Sinclair Lewis, an American novelist and social critic who punctuated national complacency with his broadly drawn, widely popular satiric novels, who in 1930 became the first American to win the Nobel Prize for literature, was born. 1885. 1940, the animated film Pinocchio had its world premiere and it became one of Disney's most beloved classics, known for its brilliant animation and compelling story. 1966, American Chris Rock, who began being known for his stand-up routines and films, was born on this day. Happy birthday, Chris Rock. And little did he know he's going to get slapped in the face. 1970. <laughs> uh, Live on television. Up, be a punching bag for... Uh, no, I refuse to remember Chris Rock just for that. Sorry. 1974, Grenada gained independence from the United Kingdom. Grenada, which we invaded... Uh, about eight years later to save Ronald Reagan's presidency. 1986, the wake of, in the wake of political unrest, Haitian President Jean-Claude Duvalier fled his country with U.S. assistance for France. Famously a butcher. 1999, Abdullah II became King of Jordan hours after the death of his father, Hussein. 19, uh, 2013, Mississippi became the last U.S. state to officially abolish slavery <laughs> in 2013. Wow. It had ratified the 13th Amendment in 1995, but failed to submit the necessary paperwork. Way to go, Mississippi. Right on the ball. <laughs> 2015, American College of Basketball coach Dean Smith died. He's making one of the most successful basketball coaches of all time. Otherwise, you wouldn't remember him, right? He wasn't successful. 2019, ba baseball player and manager Frank Robinson, who was the first black manager in Major League Baseball, died at the age of 82. Featured a band on this day. You could have played the Beatles, but it goes to block, so we're not going to do the Beatles on our, our mic drop. 1964, British Invasion launched by the Beatles' arrival in the U.S. Musical British Invasion Beyond the Beatles landed in New York City on this day in 1964. Two nights later, as Beatlemania stormed America, the performance on the Ed Sullivan Show was watched by 73 million viewers. 
course. You had three channels back then. But everybody was all into the Beatles, wanted to see them. And you, eh, you could probably play it on Friday, right? Two days from now. Yeah. It's settled in uh, appearance. And I'd probably be blocked by the Beatles because they don't own the rights to this TV show. Charles Dickens was born on this day. That's right. We could have played some Dickens even. February 7th, 1812, Portsmouth, England. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times because he died on July 9th, 1870. Death of England. At the age of 58. Wow, he just did not live very long in those days. Other birthdays. Alejandro Jodorowsky, filmmaker, born in 29, 1929. Garth Brooks' birthday today, born in 1962. And Steve Nash, Canadian basketball player and coach, born in 1974. Those are your days. And what day is it today? It's National Send a Card to a Friend Day. Hell yeah. So send cards. Send one to a friend. That's a traditional it's Dutch thing. They love sending cards. Dutch people love sending cards. Everything. For everything. Oh, yeah. Congratulations on your well, job. Well, Congratulations on everything. Yeah, here's a card. Hmm. National Fettuccine Alfredo Day. Uh, it's good stuff. I got sick Get from that pasta once. On. <laughs> Get your pasta on today with your fettuccine. National Periodic Table. Uh, I don't really know it that well. I just kind of know how chemicals work with each other and that's all you really need to know. I mean, it's a great chart for remembering things. But yeah, it never worked for me for some reason. <laughs> National Girls and Women's in Sports Day. And that's, that's the day. That's right, women and girls National do sports. girls and women in sports. I'm yeah. sorry. Yes, that's right, they do sports. Girls and women do sports. It's, nas it's <laughs> National Girls and Women in Sports Day on this day. February 7th, 2024 on Before Coffee. All right, this has been Allison here from the Netherlands. I guess I'm gonna go send everyone on my neighborhood some cards because it's National Card Day, and that's what I was gonna say too. Right on. Congratulations! It's National Card Day. Here's your card. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just send it out Happy to everyone. February seventh. And we will see you tomorrow for a themeless Thursday to cover whatever news we want to cover. Here is your mic drop moment. Oh, actually, also don't forget to subscribe and like and follow and all the things because we need your support and if you want to support us you can always check out the tip um, URL in the description on the YouTube video and you can tip us and help support this small little podcast show with me and my dad here's a mic drop moment <laughs> I need to remember to keep on self-promoting what did you expect welcome Sonny make yourself at home Marry my daughter. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land. The common clay of the new west. You know. Morons. <laughs>sure to hit the like, subscribe, and notify buttons, and follow our other channels, Toxic Alley, History of Gravy, and Scratchy Old Records.